In the world of bourbon, the master distiller reigns supreme. A master distiller often has a background in chemistry with years of experience. It's not a highly regulated term, but it's incredibly highly revered and respected. The master distiller is just that, the master of distilling that occurs at any given company. The idea of the master distiller dates back to the 1800s and is often used to tip a hat to someone who is considered to be an expert in their field. I've talked about modern-day master distillers like Lincoln Henderson and Marion Eves, as well as historical master distillers like Nearest Green. With their hands in developing mash bills, sourcing yeast, identifying the distilling process and the equipment, and finally cooperage, they have a very vast knowledge and expertise on the distillate that goes into a barrel. As bourbon nerds, we know it doesn't stop once the distillate hits the barrel, and that's where the chief and master blender comes into play. In a small distillery, the master distiller and the master blender blender are one and the same. One person does both jobs. But as production expands and the requirements of the job grow, these two careers often divide. And what exactly is a master blender? A master blender is a position that Scotch and Irish whiskey drinkers know much about. It holds a much higher esteem in their ranks than currently in the world of bourbon. If the master distiller is a science degree, then the master blender is an arts degree. It relies more heavily on a palate and the ability to identify complementary flavor profiles, appropriate measures to achieve an intended result, and some degree of soothsaying to understand that a particular barrel has reached its peak and will begin to decline in quality if left alone. While the job function is essential in large-scale bourbon operations, the idea of buying already-aged bourbon and blending it to create a new brand is rapidly growing in the United States. When I think of the idea of a master blender, there are three things that come to mind. MGP, Nevada h and Distilling Company, and Barrel Bourbon. In this episode, I'll be talking about the company that enables so many brands to even exist because of its vast quantities of bottle-ready bourbon and a couple of companies that are taking advantage of those barrels with a high degree of success. They've abandoned the idea that their brand must create its own distillate. It must age it themselves, and then they can proudly claim that it's their own juice. They are challenging the notion that only real bourbon is made in-house, and only real bourbon comes from Kentucky. And I'd say they are doing so with a high degree of success. Welcome to the Embellish Podcast, where we like to talk about stories. We like to explore how embellishment makes a story better, how it allows us to connect more deeply with both the person telling the story and the subject of the story. Together, we will explore people, products, and places that have a story to tell. We'll navigate through the truths, half-truths, and outright lies, and decide if truthiness even matters. Many current bourbon brands favor the concept of vertical integration. In simpler terms, vertical integration is the idea that a particular company oversees multiple stages of the production of any given product. Traditionalists hold fast to the idea that the research and development of mash bills, sourcing of grain, distillation, barreling, warehousing, harvesting, blending, and bottling of a particular expression should be done all under the umbrella of one company and often under the same roof. And that idea works provided you have the financial resources to achieve that degree of work. Most companies have the ability to be vertically integrated on either a very small or very large scale. Once you transition into a mid-level business, it becomes essential to outsource portions.
portions of the process to people who can focus solely on that particular aspect of the process and perfect it. This frees up growing businesses to utilize vast resources of major companies at a fraction of the cost. Therein lies the beauty of a company like MGP, otherwise known as Midwest Grain Products of Indiana. One that largely has taken the task of focusing solely on developing top quality mash bills, distilling and barreling a product, and then passing off the selection of those barrels and bottling solutions to be done by whomever chooses to do business with them. MGP can almost be a dirty word to some bourbon fans, while others have not only accepted it, they are now trying to seek out the different expressions of MGP. They don't care about the brands that have purchased the barrels for resale. They are referring more to the bottles of 3-year, 9-year, or 13-year MGP. MGP has quite the lineage in the spirits industry. The distillery itself, under a previous name, was founded in the mid-1800s. Seagram Spirits purchased the distillery post-prohibition and jettisoned its previous identity in favor of branding it under their flagship. Seagram's was acquired by Pernod Ricard in the early 2000s. Pernod announced intentions to close the distilling operations in Indiana, but later sold it to another company who rebranded it LDI, Lawrenceburg Distillers of Indiana. After some severe financial struggles, LDI sold the distillery to MGP. Some brands buy MGP or other source products and do whatever they can to obscure their relationships, while others make it known the relationship is just an opportunity to bring their brand to the marketplace faster. An even smaller group occupying the space of master blenders never really intends to distill their own whiskey. No matter the path that the reseller of the whiskey happens to be, we know that without the product that MGP creates, we wouldn't likely have some top quality brands. Bottles like Bell Mead, Joseph Magnus, and Pinhook, and even more. An interesting note, under a previous name, Seagram's purchased and dismantled the Greenbrier Distillery, shipped it to Canada, and reassembled it for distillation. Seagram's was sold to Ricard, and the Ricard sells the Indiana Distillery to LDI, which in turn sells to MGP. You can ultimately draw a very squiggly line from the origins of Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery's operation to its current source of bourbon for the Bell Mead line. This is often the case in the bourbon world. These lines diverge and merge in an almost incessant ebb and flow. Contrary to the path chosen by Nelson's Greenbrier Distillery to use sourced whiskey as a launching platform for a line that they ultimately would produce, Nevada H&C Distilling Company is marching down a different path. Nevada H&C Distilling Company, more commonly known to bourbon snobs as Smoke Wagon Bourbon, is a fantastic consumer of these barrels distilled and stored by MGP. While it wasn't their initial plan to sell MGP product for the duration of their brand, the shifting sands of licensure and zoning prohibited them from being able to distill their own product. Nevada H&C is the brainchild of two very different but very complementary characters. Jonathan and Aaron, the brand co-founders, met in the early 2000s in a bar in Los Angeles. Over drinks, they decided it would be a good idea to start up a bar in Las Vegas. At the time, Aaron was into clear spirits and what one could do with them in cocktails. While crafting these ideas, the discussion of what they liked and didn't like in spirits became a central point of discussion, until one day it dawned on them to start their own brand. The duo jumps out and starts purchasing equipment needed to kickstart their brands. As is the case with any number of the craft distillers, if you want to put a bourbon on the shelf in less than four years, you either have to be satisfied with a very light bourbon, or you have to find someone to buy barrels from. The choice to source their bourbon from a company out of Indiana initially would change the trajectory of the brand 
indefinitely. Unbeknownst to Nevada H&C, while they were out purchasing barrels and prepping bottles to hit shelves, Nevada craft distilling laws were changing, and that would create a problem for the fledgling brand. I won't go into the nuance of the law because I'm not entirely sure I understand it, but in simple terms, Aaron and Jonathan were faced with the choice of selling all of the MGP they had on hand quickly, and then beginning to distill their own product to bottle, or swap their business model to one of a blending bourbon brand. And that's exactly what they did. They pivoted to the idea that they could source amazing barrels and create unique flavor profiles that if they had tried to do on their own would take them anywhere from 4 to 12 years. And as if crafting a top-notch flavor profile weren't enough, they set about creating a unique branding profile within the bourbon community. Employing one of the most unique and visually appealing bottle designs, the small batch and uncut unfiltered bottles are embossed with designs and have a recession in them that contains a unique wax inset stamp. It will stand out on a shelf next to any bottle in the marketplace. Once the flavor profiles were on point and the bottle design was dialed in, Aaron set about becoming the spokesperson to the brand on social media. His genuine character within the Instagram world caught attention early on. A little over a year ago, an online bourbon group had made a single barrel selection with Smoke Wagon to make available to its members. The group had partnered with a retailer in California for distribution across the United States. A unique loophole within the California distribution process is that once the bottles have hit a distributor, if there's not a purchase order on hand, the barrel is essentially open to the market and any retailer can submit an invoice and purchase those bottles. Whether it was planned or it was pure luck, a different retailer in the state of California ended up with the barrel. And that was just the beginning of the avalanche. Social media outrage was spilling out towards the retailer, towards the group that purchased the barrel, and towards Aaron. And it was getting out of control. Messages were sent out to group members with the regrettable news, and you might think it would stop there. But as we have seen over the last year, Aaron has communicated a narrative about himself being a genuine human being. Aaron took to social media in a campaign while still on vacation to explain even further the details of the situation and promised that they would find a way to make it right to the bourbon community. The degree of frankness of his message was instantly viral for the bourbon nerds of Instagram land. And that viral nature led to an incredible increase in the demand for smoke wagon line that they were putting out. In an odd twist of fate, the retailer that stole the bottles was only able to get 67% of that order. That left a very limited quantity of bottles that were named Bourbon Karma, and they were sold to a random drawing of the members of that group. Luckily, I happen to be one of those members. It puts me in an incredible crossroads because there will 100% never be another bottle like this one. It's almost a flagship bottle for this particular podcast project. The contents of the bottle will only be enhanced by the story that comes along with it. A brand with a legitimately thankful and humble spokesperson that says what he means and means what he says. And if that weren't enough, over the last year, the brand has hosted giveaways on Instagram for bottles that most of the nation would never gain access to, with simple instructions on one of them specifically. For their rare and limited bottles, well, they had better not show up on any secondary market. They were individually numbered and it would be easily identifiable where they had come from. As people often do, they tested the will of whether the brand truly meant it, and they did mean it. A few months after the giveaway, one of these rare and limited bottles shows up on a secondary group on social media. Once again, Aaron took to social media to admonish the behavior. Maybe one of the more interesting things that Aaron does for the brand is he takes us along on his blending journey, regularly posting videos from blending stations. He talks about tasting notes, barrel makeup, and percentages. He invites you to be a spectator to the process, incredible transparency and honesty about what he's doing. Ultimately, he's taking up the mantle of Master Blender and doing so with a degree of skill that must be innate to his own natural ability. Those are the types of things that really identify a brand to me. An interesting story. 
It's not always one steeped in tradition. Sometimes it's a person who is honest, transparent, and inclusive. Someone who truly believes in the thing they are trying to make. A person filled with passion. One willing to do things slightly different than everyone else because they see a different angle. A different way of being successful. And there aren't many approaches to whiskey more different than that of barrel craft spirits. From top to bottom, barrel craft spirits has no resemblance to a traditional whiskey operation. Barrel Craft Spirits is the brainchild of a former technology entrepreneur who decided to set out to blend exceptional barrels of whiskey into something amazing. This idea that the sum of the parts would be greater than the individual parts alone became the impetus for launching one of the most interesting series of bourbons and whiskeys I've ever had. Like our previously discussed brand, Barrel Craft Spirits does not, and it appears they will not, distill their own product. They take on the mantle of NDP, or non-distiller producer. This, in and of itself, isn't unique, but their approach of how they go about being an NDP is. Most NDPs will use a single secondary source of whiskey to create their brand. The intentions of this single source is to create a repeatable flavor profile. Not the case with Barrel. Barrel appears to use all of the sources of barrels available to them. They blend all of these barrels into batches. Each batch is unique to its predecessor. True to his roots, Barrel founder Joe Beatrice carries the view that bourbon is like America's first open-sourced product. For those who are unaware of what that means, open-source refers to a product, often software-related, that can be modified, shared, or tweaked by mass public because it is accessible to all. And largely, he's right. Bourbon is a very collaborative and open community. It may not be quite the bleeding edge when it comes to change, but it's not necessarily averse to changing conditions in the market. Consumers gaining a taste for higher proof, single barrels, cask finishing, blending, all the things that bourbon brands can rapidly adapt to because of the nature of their work. Further inviting this kind of transparency, Barrelcraft Spirits publishes their blends, the age of the barrels contained, the location where the barrels were sourced from. The concepts behind Barrelcraft Spirits seem to be very data-driven. I personally imagine spreadsheets with barrel inventories, tasting notes, and some sort of a complementary flavor mapping tool with a proprietary algorithm to help them decide where to start when blending all of these unique expressions that they capture. With that in mind, it is of no surprise to find that the distillery purchased an old data center to use as the blending center. Because of the climate control mechanisms that were in place for large computer installations, they're very similar and beneficial for warehousing and blending whiskey. The challenge to traditional whiskey making leads to blends and barrel finishes that create flavor profiles that you wouldn't be able to find otherwise. When the Armida line was initially launched, I avoided the hype train because I wasn't really aware of what Barrel Craft Spirits was trying to do. They had an abundance of blends on the market, and I wasn't sure if it was all hype. When I finally got past my preconceived notions of the brand, I was able to taste one of their most unique barrel finished bourbons I've ever had. Traditionally, I don't seek out barrel finished products. Mostly, I don't seek them out because I have a hard enough time picking up tasting notes with my novice palate from traditional bourbon that the added complexity is largely lost on me. I can identify quickly that it's different, but if you were to ask me how I thought the Amaro cask really impacted the flavor of the bourbon, I'd have to tell you that number one, I don't know what Amaro tastes like, so I wouldn't be able to pick that out of the barrel. And number two, I'm pretty much the guy that is, I like this or I don't like. Stepping outside of my own comfort zone, I tried the Armida and was met with one of the most complex tasting profiles I've had to date. I knew I liked it, but I couldn't exactly put my finger on why. And each time that I've revisited it, it has carried a different taste, but none of them have been bad. That is a result of challenging the traditional way of doing things. By implementing different methodologies, you can do something new with something that is a very old product. This approach Barrel has identified is one of tossing out what is known to be right or wrong and experimenting. In software world, their implementation might be called agile. It's creating an experiment, 
then getting it in front of people to see how they react, you analyze the results, and then you pivot and try something else different. A more adventurous person might call them maverick. The common theme of three very different approaches to making this spirit that we all seem to like so much is relatively simple. In an era where having a storied brand is becoming ubiquitous, a counterculture is developing. Whether good or bad, many people are turning on traditional forms of product storytelling. Not wanting to be sold on a product by a flashy design and a historical account, and brands like Smoke Wagon and Barrel Bourbon have found their home. They've been able to resonate with folks that are tired of the same old implementation. These makers haven't set out to hinder or even criticize traditional brands. They've just identified a niche that they can slide into, an area of the market that is opening to them. They've cemented their footprint into this marketplace through crafting their own story. So while fans of bourbon are abandoning the legacy stories, they are adopting a new one. Brand loyalty is based off the spokesperson or the methodology. There's a story still, it just isn't a traditional one. Thanks for listening to the Embellish Podcast. If you like what you heard, make sure you subscribe. Check out our website at embellishpod.com and follow us on social media at Instagram and Twitter to keep up with what we have going on. If you have an idea about a story we should talk about, send it to us at embellishpod at gmail.com. And remember, whether famous or infamous, a good story mixed with a touch of embellishment makes the food you ate, the drink you drank, and the places you visited just a little more memorable. Yeah.